And it is such a privilege to be able to introduce my son this morning, uh, who will come and minister the word to us. Now, for those of you who don't know him, he is a pastor on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, um, Osterville Baptist Church. He is the senior pastor. And uh, affectionately, they uh, call me Rob 1.0 there at his church. Uh, He's Rob 2.0. I'm the older, clunkier version. He is the new and improved version. And uh, so appreciate what God is doing through his ministry there on Cape Cod. Um, As a church family, we want to keep all churches that teach the word of God in prayer. But there's such a unique ministry opportunity on Cape Cod, um, where God is doing a work in their midst, and some good things are happening there. So Rob, would you come and minister the word to us now? Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here with you and to open up God's word with you. I'm here for two reasons. One is to see you, and uh, the second is Dad and I are heading up to Canada to go fishing together, so that's going to be a good time. Uh, Someone in the prayer meeting this morning was saying, oh, are you going to make sure that he catches fish? And I said, I can't make sure of anything. I can put him where the fish are, and uh, (laughs) he has to do the work from there. So there's no guarantees in life with fishing, is there? Uh, So Nehemiah chapter 10, we all there together? Nehemiah chapter 10. You guys might be thinking, why in the world Nehemiah? (laughs) Well, we're looking at it. We've been studying a series called Lead Where You Are with My Church in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, it's a wonderful book of the Bible. If you've never studied it, I would encourage you to do so. Nehemiah chapter 10. Commitment. People today hear that word, and some of them actually think it's a dirty word. There's people out there with commitment phobia. I'm sure you've heard of commitment phobia. In fact, it's uh, regularly talked about in the dating world. There are people who don't like to get tied down. Now, maybe you're not a commitment phobe, but you do tend to avoid pinning yourself down with obligations and things like that. Did you know there's an app for that today? That's right. Say one of your friends is moving on Saturday, and they call you up, and they say, hey, are you free to help me to move? Now, the honest answer is yes, you are free. Uh, Or the real answer is yes. The honest answer is no, because you're a human being and not a forklift, right? And so there's this app. It's called Got This Thing. It's just for you. The app uses your phone's location to populate your Google Calendar with local stuff that's happening, like the upcoming Parks Department tree census that you had committed to some months ago. So you click the Got Busy button, and in an instant, your blank schedule turns into a confetti of things to do. Now, People were asking the creator of this app if this was just something that people could use to find things to do and that kind of stuff. And he said, look, while that is true, don't get the uh, primary purpose mixed with the secondary. This app is for people who just want to avoid doing things. (laughs) Now, hold on a second. (laughs) 
Besides being outright deceptive, this app demonstrates our modern predilection towards a lack of commitment. What happens when people take a laissez-faire attitude towards commitments? Well, nothing. <laughs> At least nothing of significance. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, if you've never studied it, you know that, um, or if you have studied it, you know that the main uh, central feature character is Nehemiah. Uh, this is the post-exilic time. So the people of Israel had been taken off into Babylon and then uh, change of leadership, Babylon to Persia. And King Artaxerxes uh, makes a decree so that the people can head back. Some 80 to 90 years have passed and the people have been trying to rebuild this city called Jerusalem, but it's been slow going. So Nehemiah is told by his brother Hanani that Jerusalem is in disrepair. And great shame is being brought upon the people of God. And so uh, Nehemiah, a man of grit and determination, heads back to Jerusalem and they start to undergo this big rebuilding project. The first six chapters of Nehemiah are about rebuilding a wall. Rebuilding a wall. And it's not anything to do with the modern notion of rebuilding a wall. It's much different than that. The second half of the book, Nehemiah 7, 7 through 13, is about rebuilding a people. So Nehemiah 7 is rebuilding with community. Nehemiah 8 is rebuilding with the word of God. They looked at the word of God so that they could come to know the God of the word. And as they read the word of God, Nehemiah 9, the people are struck because they realize that they had not been walking with this great and glorious God and when they go into the word of God, they see that he is a great God, a good God, a long-suffering God, and that when they had sinned against him, they could actually return to him. And so Nehemiah 9 is rebuilding with confession. Now, when you talk about confession, it's one thing to say that you are acknowledging that you've done something wrong. It's another thing to commit to change. And when you look at Nehemiah 9, you'll see that one of the big principles about confession is that if you are going to confess sin to God, you also have to make a decisive commitment to change. So Nehemiah 9.38 on the screen, you'll see there, the people say this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Nehemiah 10 is the signing of a document with uh, specifics involved where they are making a firm covenant to God. A covenant is just a binding commitment. Saying before God, we will do what we say we will do. And as we read this passage, I want to draw your attention to some principles on commitment and explain why commitment is so important for the people of God. So we're going to go all the way back to verses 1 through 27 and read that together. It's a list of forgotten names. Pray for me as I read this. They're very hard to pronounce. And uh, we'll read that together for our first principle. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchizedek, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathoth, uh, Barak, Meshulam, Abijah, Majamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, 
Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Benui the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakir, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benanu, the chiefs of the people, Perash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bonai, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, uh, Bigvi, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, uh, Hodiah, Hashem, Bazai, uh, Hareth, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, uh, Meshezebel, Zadak, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Helohash, Pilha, Shakbek, or Shobek, Raham, uh, Hashabna, Maasiah, uh, Haya, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, Ba'ana. Thank you for clapping. I assure you that was not well done. Uh, the first principle that we see in the text here is that commitment calls for personal investment. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself as I'm reading that list of names to you, why in the world is he reading this list of names to me? Because we have no personal attachment to anyone involved here, and as you just heard, we can barely pronounce their names. Now, Alistair Begg makes an analogy here with this list of names. It's like walking into a cemetery and seeing a group of gravestones with names upon them, and you don't feel any sort of sentimental attachment to, towards these people as you walk by, unless they had some personal involvement in your life. Now, if you were to be walking through that seminary, and you, or cemetery, sometimes seminary is like cemetery, um, and you see someone kneeling in front of the grave, say it's a young woman, and she's just weeping in front of the grave, you would think to yourself, well, she must know this person. There must be some involvement here. If you were walking by that same grave, and you saw me kneeling before it, and you knew I didn't know the person, and I was just weeping before the grave, you might think something quite different. Like he's crazy. But here's the point as you're looking through this list. To someone, these names did matter. I assure you that Moloch, verse 27, Moloch, that for him, someone wept when he died. Moloch mattered. The point that we're seeing here is that every name in the list matters. These people were people who lived real lives. They held down jobs. They had kids that they lost sleep over. They had romantic attachments. Someone who made their heart beat when they looked at them. These were people who were no different from you and me. They were ordinary people. Ordinary people that God used for extraordinary purposes. It's interesting when you think about wanting God to use you in this life. A lot of us think that something extraordinary needs to happen before God can use us. You sit there and think to yourself, well, if only I was a little more well-spoken, or I, I was a little more well-read, or I had a little bit more charisma about me, then God could use me. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But here's the point. If you're waiting to become extraordinary for God to be able to use you, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. 
Because God doesn't need extraordinary people. He needs people who are obedient and committed to his will. I believe that this is what is so significant about this list. It's a group of leaders that are saying, look, I'm willing to have some skin in this game. This is bigger than just my little life. This is Jerusalem. This is the place where God's glory is made to shine forth amongst the nations. And we are going to commit to rebuilding this place. And we will build it by personally committing to the things of God. Now notice the name numero uno on the list. Who is it? Nehemiah. The list contains some 84 names, 21 priests, 17 lead Levites, 44 heads of home. However, Nehemiah's name leads this list. Now, as we're making our way through the book of Nehemiah at my church, uh, we were deriving some certain leadership principles from this book. I'll tell you, there's been a lot of good books written on leadership. Good to great, uh, seven uh, highly effective habits of, or, you know, however you say that book's name. Um, Seven effective, or seven habits of highly effective people. There we go. I'm going to get it after some time here. But tons of books, hundreds of years worth of leadership books, lots of ink spilt. But I got to tell you, the best book on leadership is God's Word. It really is. They're taking all of their cues from the Bible. So I want you to think about something with leadership with me for a moment. Can you think about leadership without commitment? I can't. I mean, leadership and commitment seem to go hand in hand together, don't they? In fact, leaders are in the business of commitment. So here's a leadership principle for you. Leaders make and keep commitments. Now, a famous leader in American culture for leading a list with his name is none other than John Hancock, the name that is now synonymous with the signature. It was on July 4th, right? 1776, a day that we commemorate by lighting off illegal fireworks, uh, a day that they took their lives into their hands by signing the Declaration of Independence. Very similar by way of risk, I think. It was quite risky, wasn't it? This business of signing this document under pain of death kind of risky. This Continental Congress, the president of it, Hancock was the first signer. And legend has it that Hancock put his name so big and bold and uh, beautiful like that because he wanted the king of England not to need his glasses to read his name. Leadership or commitment calls for personal investment. With Nehemiah out front, these 84 leaders are leading the charge. They're saying, we're not just going to follow God. We're not just going to talk about it. We're going to put skin in the game. We're going to invest. The question I have for you, do you have skin in the game? And how do you know if you do have skin in the game? Well, I think the second principle we're going to see here is one key indicator that we have skin in the game. The second principle is this, that commitment involves separation. That's verses 28 and 29. You'll see there in the text. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. 
that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So verse 28 indicates two facts that identify these people who are making this commitment. The first is that they separated themselves from the surrounding nations. You'll also notice that they have knowledge and understanding. Basically, they know what they're doing and why they are doing it. I want you to think about that word separation with me for a moment. Isn't that a rather intolerant attitude to have? To separate yourselves from people? Might even be a touch bigoted? The Hebrew for the word separation means to divide and separate. But I want you to understand something about this word. The purpose of this separation is a total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. A total devotion to God. You're separating yourself due to religious reasons, not racial reasons. You see, today when we hear that in our ears, we think that this has something to do with ethnicity or racial boundaries or something like that. But that was not what it was about in this day and age. The Israelites understood that their devotion to God involved all aspects of their life, their religious life, their social life, including their love life, and their business life, how they practiced business, who they were willing to practice business with. Now, the law of God told them that they were to love the foreigner, to invite the foreigner in, but it also told them that they were to not live like the foreigner. Understand that you guys have been making your way through 1 John in the scriptures. And actually there's a term out of 1 John that's very similar to this term separated. Do not love the world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we'll get more specific on what they were separating themselves onto as we move forward. But for now, just understand that separation is total commitment to God motivated by love for God. It's a balanced decision. You separate from something to something. So the Israelites are separating themselves from the peoples of the land in order to separate themselves unto God. That's what we see in the text. They knew that a divided commitment was really no commitment at all. Now, I think you guys understand this, especially for those of you who are married. Um, on the day of your wedding, when you made that wedding covenant, you separated yourself. I remember my wedding day. It was the second best day of my life. Uh, the first best day was when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I remember standing at the altar when I was about to make this covenant and I was just beaming and glowing and smiling and, and I looked and Katie started walking down the aisle and then I just started to cry because I felt so bad for all the other women of the world. <laughs> it was only much later that I realized that they didn't feel so bad about the situation as I did. Now that day I said to Katie, I said yes, and by saying yes to Katie, I was essentially saying a whole bunch of no's to other people. I was committing not only to sexual faithfulness, but faithfulness of the heart. 
I was separating myself from flirty conversations, unhealthy emotional attachments, dates. Now, you can look at a decision like that and say to yourself, well, isn't that just a little bit narrow-minded? I mean, come on. How do you know you're going to be happy if, if you just restrict yourself to one relationship? And I just look back at people and say, look, you just didn't marry who I married. I've done married good. Okay? Barry Cooper asked the question, might the intoxication of choice lead to the death of commitment and contentment? He cites psychologist Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice, who argues that a large array of options may actually diminish the attractiveness of what people actually choose. That's why when you're standing in line waiting for your Starbucks and you hear the person in front of you order their coffee at 140 degrees, all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, well, I haven't really lived yet. I haven't ordered my coffee at 140 degrees. And now you're no longer happy with the coffee that you were going to get. Well, Schwartz says the reason being that thinking about the attractions of some of the unchosen options detracts from the pleasure derived from the chosen one. Might that be why people are not finding happiness in Christ? They haven't separated themselves. They're still loving the world. You're keeping your options open. But as you come to find out, it just doesn't work. Because a divided commitment is no commitment at all. Let's look at a third principle in the text. Commitment requires specificity. Now as we read verse 29, the general commitment to obey God by obeying the word of God was what they were saying they would do. But then in verses 30 and onward, the Jews become very specific. Notice that they don't enumerate the entire law of God. They don't go through all of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They talk about three specific things that they were doing, that they needed to make right with God. Isn't it important to be specific when you are making a commitment to something? I mean, vague and general statements lead to loose follow-through. This is why when I'm doing marriage counseling with couples that are about to be married, I insist that they don't just write their vows, that they use the traditional wedding vows. I want you to hear the traditional vows. Listen to the specificity. I, John, take you, Susan, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part according to God's holy ordinance, and to, ple or to you I pledge my faith. And while you're reading the I do portion of the vows, you also commit to forsake all others. So just think about the specifics here. Until death do us part, the permanence of marriage. I forsake all others, the exclusivity of marriage. Why do I insist on this? Well, because you insist on things because you've been burned, Right? A lot of rules happen because someone did something and you say, hmm, I better make a rule about that in the future. I remember sitting in a wedding ceremony where the bride read her uh, vows to her groom and it went something like this. Dear Jojo, and I can't remember the names involved, but everything was very mushy. I love you more than anything. You make me feel so good. I promise I'll stay with you for as long as I can, and I hope this works out. 
What? Does that even count? I don't know, and that's the problem. Vague language leads to uncertainty and loose follow-through. This is why rental agreements are clear, why employee contracts are clear, and all kinds of other things. Specific. So let's look at the specifics here. Verse 30, you see one thing that they're very specific about. They commit to marrying believers. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. See, the law of God didn't allow them to marry non-believers. Exodus 34, 12 explains the heart of it. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. See, again, the, the law of God here is on religious grounds and not racial grounds. Notice, if you read the book of Ruth, that Boaz marries Ruth, the Moab. She's a foreigner. No one comes up to him and says, Oh, Boaz, you can't marry her. No. Why? Because back in Ruth 1.16, Ruth committed to Naomi. Your God is now my God. Why was this such an important issue for them, but also important for us? I want to think about it like this. Think about the family. One of the most important structures in our life that God created, the family. Basic social unit of society, it's where our children learn right from wrong, where we were developed with certain skills and habits, and prayerfully where we learn to know God and walk with God. There's a simple principle, and it goes like this. If you want to hurt faith, attack the family. Marriage is the bedrock of the family. In Genesis 2.24, we learn that a new home forms when a man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. One author notes that this one fleshness speaks to a union of all we are. Such one flesh union is impossible without agreement on who God is and what it means to know and to worship him. I tell couples often when they're preparing for their marriage that your relationship is like a triangle— you got the husband, you got the wife, you have Christ. And if you want to grow closer to your spouse, you must grow closer to Christ. And it's very true. Look at a second commitment. They committed to observing the spirit of the Sabbath. You notice there in verse 31, the peoples of the land bring in goods, they bring in grain, the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on this holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, this commitment had to do with two things. One, God has built rest into his seven-day week. It's important. We don't rest. We just kind of become like cogs in a machine that just keep going and going and going. And I know you've been there, and I've been there. But also, it's a God-ordained way of building trust, a framework of trust into the lives, particularly of the Israelite people. You have to trust God that in six days he will provide enough for seven. When you think about the Sabbath year, you have to trust God to provide through that time when you're letting the ground lay fallow. And also, trust God with the debts. You notice there at the last part, 
That was a normal aspect of the law. Now, we're not talking about a simple trust fall here, are we? Someone falls back and they bruise their bum and maybe their ego. No, we're talking about trusting God with their livelihood. And that's a tough commitment to ask for people who had known many days where they sat around the table and there wasn't food to speak of. Now, it's easy to fall into the spirituality trap where we want to find loopholes in God's word so we can do what we want to do still. You know, for these people, uh, the exiles had one with the Sabbath. Yes, God's law says that we can't work, but it never said that we can't have others work for us. So in this way, they can keep along on that seventh day and yet maintain the appearance of obedience. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he sets up those back and forth statements, have you heard or you have heard that it was said but I say to you? You've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery? God doesn't want us to obey him from some rigid, external, dutiful form of obedience. He wants a devotional obedience. He wants an obedience that comes and wells up from the heart because we know who he is and we love him. And this is what they're committing to do. As we move on, there's a third commitment that they make. They commit to not neglect the house of their God. Verse 39 summarizes it. It says, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. If you're making your way through 32 through 39, in my Bible, I've circled the house of the Lord or the house of God no less than nine times. Now, what does it mean to neglect something? To fail to care for it properly. To not pay proper attention to it or to fail to do something that you should do. Take a look up on the screen there. That's what neglect looks like. Now, I'd submit to you these people didn't do something destructive like walking into this home, lighting a match, setting the house on fire, and burning it down to the ground. They achieved the same result. That house is no longer good enough to live in. You see, neglect is a series of apathetic choices. You can neglect your relationship with God. You can neglect your relationship with your spouse. You can neglect your relationship with your children. You can neglect serving others, but the result is the same in all situations. Destructive decay over time. Solomon talks about this in Proverbs 24. He said, I passed by the field of a slugger, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone walls were broken down. And then I saw and I considered it and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. Their commitment to work on the temple here in verses 32 to 39 is a decisive no to neglect. 
That's the, that's the medicine for neglect, isn't it? Is a decisive no to say, I'm willing to take responsibility. And they were willing to take responsibility for this temple. They said, when the people of the land come here to Jerusalem and look at this temple, it's going to look immaculate because God's name dwells here. They're not going to look at a temple that's in disrepair. They're not going to see cobwebs in the corner. They're not going to watch skinny priests walking around the temple. We're going to take care of this. Verses 32 and 33 give us one way that they did this. They gave a third of a shekel on an annual basis. You know what they're doing there? They're viewing their commitment to keeping up with the house of the Lord as an ongoing commitment. It's going to continue to need help. You also see something else in verse 34. They assign someone the responsibility to bring the wood in so that the sacrificial system can continue. The idea here is that they saw that accountability is important. You've probably heard the expression, what is everybody's business is nobody's business. They said no to neglect. Someone's going to have this responsibility. And then thirdly, I think you see that they prioritized God's work. If you look at verses 35 and 37, look at all those firsts. First fruit, firstborn, first of their goods. They had their priorities right. They realized that God gets the best. God gets off the top. He doesn't get the leftovers. And I think that this is an important principle for Christians that we see on giving. You see, Christian giving should be a planned, systematic, cheerful, off-the-top demonstration that God has first place in your heart. Does God have first place in your heart? Is he the premier, the preeminent one, the supreme one? While you do not have a temple to care for, you do have the ongoing work of the local ministry here at Oaklawn Bible Church that should not go under neglect. That means caring for this beautiful building. Isn't this building awesome? Whenever I look at this place, I say, what an entrustment that people who came before gave to this generation of Christians. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, has been going forth from this church literally for decades. That's significant. You have the work of caring for ministry staff, resourcing ministers so that they can operate at optimum capacity in ministries, investing in faith into the future, sending resources worldwide for the expansion of the gospel message. So the question that you have to ask yourself is, what is this place going to look like 20 and 30 years from now? Are the next Christians going to have the gospel church passed along to them? Or are they going to inherit a place that is undergoing decay and neglect? I pray for this church that they will receive a ministry that has been so well cared for. Where people have committed themselves to it. And said this is worth everything. Every last ounce of my life. Well, maybe that scares you. 
think the fourth thing that we're going to have to be honest about is that investment or commitment does carry risk. Commitment carries risk. It can be scary to commit. For these people, to commit to marriage was scary. Why? Not because of their romantic attachments, but because upward mobility. If I marry the right person, I can skyrocket through the ranks of society. We talked about the reason that the Sabbath was a risk, and I think you can understand why giving to the work of God is a risk. What do you risk? I think we risk looking out of touch with the rest of society. We risk our love life. We risk being less marketable. If you make Sunday morning a priority, sometimes that actually makes you less marketable. We risk our time and our finances. We risk losing control. But let me say this. When you bet on God in this life, it's not like betting on some upstart stock company where you have that tight ball in your stomach because you're like, if I throw a couple thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars at this, I might lose everything. That's not what it's like when you're betting on God. In fact, in Malachi 3.10, I believe God dares us to trust him. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, you're probably thinking, is he saying if I put 10 bucks in the offering plate today, I'm going to go home and get $1,000 in my bank account? No, I'm not saying that. So get that out of your head. But I am saying that you will be blessed when you trust God with your life, including your money. Because blessing is God's favor. It's God's uh, steady watch care over your life. So that when you bet on God, it's not like betting on the stock market. It's like betting on the one who knows all things, controls all things, and decides all things. That sounds like a good bet to me. Truett Cathy, the founder and CEO of Chick-fil-A, took this bet many years ago. I read a press release, and uh, Chick-fil-A has this closed-on-Sunday policy. It's a part of uh, Cathy's theological understanding of the Lord's Day. Uh, A lot of Christians deviate on this, but he did make a commitment. He understood in his mind that this was something that the Lord would have him do. Listen to this press release. From the time he opened his first restaurant in 1946, he has made his closed-on-Sunday policy as much a part of the Chick-fil-A brand as the original Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Over the years, many have questioned the sanity of a decision like this, but Kathy answers challengers by saying closing on Sunday is one of the best decisions he ever made. The closed-on-Sunday policy is reflected in the company's corporate purpose to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Kathy believes that being closed on Sunday says two important things about Chick-fil-A. It says something about the way that they care about spiritual things. It also says something about the way they care for people. The press release says this, in today's business world, The closed-on-Sunday policy may seem to be a costly commitment, but as company sales figures have consistently proven, Chick-fil-A generates more business per square foot in six days than many other quick-service restaurants produce in seven. 
it's good to bet on God. Now, as we close, I believe that Nehemiah 10 is showing an important big idea. If you want to be used greatly by God, you must make a decisive choice to wholly surrender to God. The idea made me think of a study that I read about in a book by David Brooks called The Social Animal. He cites some research that explored the question, why do some musicians excel while others remain mediocre? I mean, why is it? And I want to know that question. Why is Ethan doing so well on drums and Kevin on the guitar and I'm just... Well, I'm not going to tell you how good I am. (laughs) In 1997, one researcher studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned instruments. Some went on to be excellent musicians, others just mediocre. The researchers searched for traits that would lead to success in these children. And do you know what they found that was so surprising? IQ had nothing to do with it. Other factors that we think might have something to do with it, like an ear or uh, an ability to have a sense of rhythm or an income level that would get them into the right teachers, really didn't have something to do with it. The one controlling factor that they found had to do with a question that they asked these 150 students right at the beginning. How long do you think you will play? The students who planned on only playing for a few years, well, they did okay. But other students said something essentially much different. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to play my entire life. Those children soared. What led to excellence? A long-term commitment. That's why Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship resonates with me so deeply. He defines it as a long obedience in the same direction. Why is it that some Christians, I hate to put it like this, are leading a spiritually mediocre life? Why aren't they living a life that's Christ-exalting, transformative, and missional? Because they haven't put all of their chips into the pile. They haven't made that long-term commitment. Would you bow your heads with me? As you're processing this sermon, I just want you to think of one thing. Have I committed myself wholly to Christ? Maybe you've placed your faith in Jesus, you understood that he lived the life you couldn't live, died on the cross for your sins, raised again for a new life, defeating sin and death. You've understood that. But you haven't wholly surrendered yourself to him. You haven't said, Jesus, this is my life. You get all of it. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to make that prayer to him this morning. Let's pray together. God, you are such a good God. You're a God who is worthy of every ounce of our strength. You say in your word that the number one thing that you call us to do is love you with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
God, we offer that up to you this morning. And we know, Lord, that if we offer ourselves up to you in that way, it will change our lives radically. Some of us are afraid of that change. But Lord, you say in your word that when we entrust ourselves to you, it doesn't lead to the easiest sort of life, but it does lead to the best sort of life possible. And we want that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.